Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. On May 2nd and 3rd, Flatmap Oslo is taking place in Oslo, Norway. Flatmap Oslo is a conference about functional programming, mainly on the JVM. The call for speakers is now open and will be accepting talk submissions until April 3rd. Please visit 2016.flatmap.no for information about the call for speakers and to register. And make sure to use code GEEKERY when registering for 10% off. And on May 4th, the day after Flatmap Oslo, the Type Level Summit is taking place. Type Level is an umbrella project for a number of prominent Scala libraries which emphasize pure, typeful, functional programming in Scala with an emphasis on outreach and promoting a friendly, safe community of collaborators and contributors. Visit typelevel.org slash event slash 2016-05-summit-oslo to find out more. Polyconf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June to the 2nd of July. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated with news as more details become available and to sign up for newsletter updates. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Matthias Felicen. Matthias, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Well, at this age, I feel like a little dinosaur because I've been around forever. I started, let me retract that word. I fell in love with parentheses in 1984. I joined Dan Friedman at Indiana, and at the time he was called the list man. But we were really doing Scheme, Scheme 84 at the time, and it was just, it opened my eyes completely new universe. I have been working on languages with parentheses ever since. I wrote a few books with my advisor back then on parentheses. We call them a little schema now in the season schema. I have written books on parentheses with my students, with my PhD students, how to design programs. And most recently, I released a book with eight freshmen called Realm of Record. So I've been all over the uh, parenthesized world. I've been all over the functional world. I've done my part of exploring Haskell and uh, ML a little bit. I thought about types for a long time. I'm a researcher a little bit, but I'm also mostly see myself as the person who provides the envelope around the racket community these days. Matthew Flat at Utah is, of course, our Mr. Racket. And then we have Robbie Findler in uh, Chicago as the Dr. Racket. And various other people like Jamie Carthy and Sam Toppenhofstadt, who is running Type Racket. So there are lots of people around in this world. We have about 25 committers who commit on a very regular basis. We have another 70 to 80 who have committed on occasion. And I see myself in the role as somebody who shepherds this process and adds new people, adds new ideas, and on occasion execute some of those. But that's my short version of my history and where I stand these days as the grandfather of record. And I was familiar with you from your little books and then realizing that you were part of the How to Design programs and more with your work a little bit from talking to William Byrd and then getting more with Racket with talking to William Flat. 
and wanted to get you on just because you have that good legacy and strong legacy and involvement in at least the scheme flavor of Lisp in the community. So you said you fell in love with parentheses early on. How did you get exposed to that? What was what was the story of the first time you actually saw a Lisp and got exposed to it and then saw the sparks fly and fell in love with the parentheses and with Lisp? Well, I will give you the anecdotal version of the story because it sounds cuter. I decided to get a PhD and eventually settled on Indiana, mostly for the people who were there at the time. I recognized the name, the readings I had done. And so I, I decided to go there in January in 1984. A snowstorm delayed me in Luxembourg, where I was flying from. And then it was a bigger snowstorm in Chicago. So I came in instead of after a 10-hour trip, it was like a 36, 38-hour trip serves me right. And I decided to go to the department. And I found Dan Friedman's office by accident. I knocked, I stumbled in. He asked me some questions and that made me feel like a fool because he talked about closures. And of course, I had heard of transitive closures, reflexive closures, and symmetric closures. And I said, no, 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 closures, real closures. I'm like, what do you mean? And he took me to his secretary's office and he gave me a stack of papers, some drafts of his books, some manuscripts that hadn't seen the day of light yet, and it was about a foot tall. It was Friday afternoon, and he said to me, read this by Monday morning. And then to top it off, he gave me a very thin little green book. It's the first little list that he had written in 1974. I almost cried when I walked out. But after a beer with a PhD student in his office and Settling in for the night, I got up next morning and I started reading. And at first, parentheses felt really weird. But there was something attractive about this green little book. And so I made my way through some of that stuff. And it was amazing. I had never thought along those lines. And the next day, on Monday, I started a course with Dan Friedman. And his way of teaching is just amazing. It's seductive. It's like the Piet Piper. And all the rats follow behind, you know. And um, I saw parentheses, and I never looked back. It was just this thing. And, and of course, initially, I, I tried to relate it back to my experience in Prologue. Cause I had been uh, hacking on Prologue for two years at that point. And um, I just, there was no comparison. And then I found, you know, macros. I found continuations, things I had never seen before, and took off from there. So that's my anecdotal version of getting to know this universe. There was so much to explore, and I'm still exploring it today. Yeah, talking with Will Bird, you and Dan kind of gave him that thing where he went and essentially followed along and essentially got sucked into that as well. So when you said Dan led you along, kind of like the Pied Piper bringing the rats, what was that entail? Was that digging straight in and just coursework at first? Or what was the start of the course that you worked on with List, where he brought you in and got you working on it because for those who aren't familiar with a phd and i only vaguely know you have some sort of thesis you have some sort of project you start working on so what was that thing that he got you in and hooked on going forward so a phd at that time and to this day has a little bit of coursework involved you start out with what we like to imagine is the core of computer science so that you have more than your own speciality under the belt, 
And Dan, in particular, taught a course called Essential Elements of Programming Languages, EOPL for short. That's what it's called these days. And he taught this course by showing us how to write one kind of interpreter per week. So you start out with a simple interpreter, and then you add features, then you transform it into continuation passing style, you turn continuations, which are closures at this point, into data representations, then you start seeing a stack in there, you turn this continuation interpreter into a register interpreter, at that point you could add garbage collection, and you act actually are writing in assembly, except that it is still scheme. So you have the entire breadth of very high-level interpretation, what's called meta-interpreter, all the way down to a C-style interpreter. So that was the first course I did with him. And then he did a second course on advanced programming techniques. And that really is just whatever he wants to do that semester. The first one was called 311, a very famous number. second one was called 511. And so in 5.11, there were, he would come in every morning and say, I had an idea. Here's a poem about it. And when he says poem, he means some little puzzle about what you could do with weird parenthetical remarks in scheme. Three-liners, ten-liners. And in addition, he would give us little projects on managing concurrent and somewhat parallel computation. At the time, 1984, that was very uh, insightful. It wasn't hot yet. It wasn't a hot area like it is today. So we studied models of concurrency and coordinated computing, as Dan called it. And one of the things you're trying to do as an instructor, and of course, an advanced course for PhD students like this, is you're trying to encourage students to think how that could improve on that. And so one of the patterns that occurred over and over again in this course was the idea that continuations played a central role in shifting the locus of control from one place to another, and at the same time, coordinating how these computations work together. And we mimicked, of course, continuations with first-class control, what is called call CC, or call with current continuation, a very powerful feature. And I recognized there were certain patterns we played with this, and I abstracted it out. I created a new language construct called delimited confirmation. I had a delimiter that would give me much finer control over this. I baked it into my version of Scheme 84 and worked with that. And that turned out to be one of the first ideas for sharing with the world how you could do things very differently. It was one of my first papers that I developed, but I, I didn't write it up at the time. It was 1984. I just sat on it for three years and then encouraged me to look at other things too. And as you graduate from a course like this, you then start talking to your advisor what, what you could do. And so we played with various things and I ended up with a quite theoretical topic, but still involved with understanding what scheme lisp languages like that had to offer to the world that wasn't in other languages. So you slowly immigrate through into your advisor's realm of research coursework but then you as you do coursework you have ideas on how to improve this world that you find and how to describe it in better ways and that's what you do so yeah my first really creative idea was the limit continuations which now time and again comes back in all kinds of forms it was in the mach kernel from cmu that meant to microsoft that 
shows up in uh, web interactions these days. It's all over. Nobody knows anymore who created it. That's fine. It was a wonderful time back then. So you go through this, you start your PhD process, and he pulls you along. And from the way William Byrd described it with the little book that he said you were tangentially involved with, I believe, but but essentially mainly him and Dan, how did you get pulled into starting to work on those little book series, especially The Little Lisper as it came through? Because that's a very different style of writing as well. And was that kind of a hint as to the interaction that he had with you all as well when he taught? Yes, absolutely. I remember to this day what happened. He asked me to be a teaching assistant for a course. That was the one time I helped him teach a course called this 311 course, an undergraduate course on the essence of programming languages. And as I was grading students' projects, I realized that they failed to understand the difference between an S expression and what the S expression actually represents. And I told them that that was a fundamental mistake in the green, the first little lisper. And he asked me to attend the course and sit in and I was sitting in for the first two weeks, for three weeks, and we were announcing how students were doing with their homework rates, and it wasn't too hot. And I started speaking up time and again on how he should teach it differently in class. And after the third or fourth of those attempts to improve on his wonderful lecturing style, he took me by the arm and brought me back to the secretary's office and said, Nancy, why don't you print the current draft? of the little lisper for Matthias. He handed it to me and he said, go away, improve it, and don't come back until you've improved it. So, so he basically threw me out as teaching assistant. And I sat down, looked at the book, and uh, one of my roommates found out he was a PhD and uh, he was a PhD student in mathematics. And he got angry. Why would you want to write a book as a PhD student? Just get your thesis done. But I had so much fun looking at Dan's prose and Dan, how Dan had shaped minds with this book for 10 years. It, it was already an underground classic at that time. I said, if I can improve a little bit on that, that would be so great. So I studied that and, and I very carefully started changing what the text did, turn it more into a conversational style than it already was. But I also brought in these ideas on how to, how to program in Scheme with what we now call an algebraic data type construction, which Dan had not done before. And using this approach was actually my very first insight, which I used 10 years later, and on how to construct programs very systematically. So this time was well spent, maybe not on my dissertation, but it was really well spent in terms of what I did later on, because slowly, very slowly, this idea came about, you can construct programs from scratch in this world if you proceed in a very systematic way. So the little lisper then also created this idea of how to design programs, but it took 10 years to get it out of my mind and in, on the paper. So that was the first little schema book. It's called Little Lisper at the time. And then two editions later, we renamed it to the little schema because in honesty, it was targeted at instructors or students or readers who wanted to study Scheme. We had Cumulus notes in there. We always programmed both in Cumulus and Scheme. But the emphasis had really become Scheme at the time, especially in the educational world, where 
Abelson and Sussman's very influential block structure on imputation of computer programs had created a market for additional scheme books. Instructors often chose the little Lisper or then the little schemer to introduce students to scheme and then use some portions of material from Abelson and Sussman's book to enrich their courses. So that's how a little schemer became a book on its own. It's still alive. It's now over 40 years old. It is unheard of that texts in computer science exist for 40 years. So I'm very happy about this. We maintained it for a long time. We polished it. We added new material and high order functions on a little bit of contamination stuff. And then in the mid-90s, it was time to write a second book. I was a professor. I had reached tenure and full professor very quickly. That's as far as you can go. My career didn't really... My career was never my goal. My, my goal was to write good stuff, to share good ideas with the world. So then I were bouncing around ideas one day, and he said, let's write a second book. And so we wrote a second book on going from functional programming in the high-order scheme world to functional programming with just a few effects, like continuations or side effects, but in a way that makes it controlled. And... That's completed what we saw was the core of, the, of this language world, and we finished up there. At that point, Dan uh, wanted to go on sabbatical and came to my place, and we had this idea of showing to the world that these idea of these design patterns of programming, this approach to programming in this high-order functional world, would actually work out everywhere, in functional languages like ML and in languages like Java. It was a new kid on the block. So we wrote two more little books, and the strange thing is we write these books actually in a week. It may sound crazy to you, but we literally sat down for uh, the season schema and spent eight 14-hour days writing, and then we polished for eight months afterwards, kind of like a baby. So uh, that's how these books come about, and it really is a seductive uh, process to sit down with these things and bring across in very, very different kind of language, different kind of approach, conversational style what the ideas are about. Yeah, so I only had gotten to read The Little Schemer a couple years ago, but I found it fascinating in the way that it was, it wasn't just ask a question, answer the question. It was essentially the ask a question, answer the question, re-ask the question again in a different manner. And that it wasn't just even a conversational style, but it was almost more of the Socratic questioning style where the questions were just meant to be digging deeper and deeper of like, so what does that really mean kind of questions, which I thought was a very interesting approach to the book as well. Yes, it is a mix of Socratic style of teaching, which both Dan and I use in our classrooms. Even for a freshman course with 200 students, I use a Socratic approach and I can call many, many students, certainly more than close to maturity by name. And the book, in a way, reflects how we imagine a small group of students with a professor or a guide could explore questions in depth in this Socratic manner. As I said before, it, uh, it is a wonderful approach to teaching. It is a wonderful approach to writing things down because it forces you to think very differently and it forces you to articulate ideas in a very different way from an ordinary textbook. People who read it have strange reactions sometimes, but all of them come away with a reaction, a strong reaction. And that is, that is to me, fascinating. It's 30 years after I wrote the first 
version of the little list or two, I still get people to stop me at conferences and at meetings. Like I was a strange loop in St. Louis. I'm going to Closure West as a keynote speaker in a few weeks. And I'm sure somebody else will tell me once again how strong they reacted to uh, this little box and this interactive style, this aquatic style of teaching and reading and writing. So yeah, I agree with you. It's a wonderful thing. And I'm very happy that Dan Friedman continued writing these books. First, he wrote a little book with Will Bird. And just recently, he completed a little reasoner, a, a book with one of my former PhD students, Carl Eastland, who is now uh, working for a company on Wall Street. Yeah, this is a good tradition, and I hope that people will continue exploring topics in depth with this uh, Socratic approach. So then you kind of, you mentioned you moved on to writing how to design programs as part of your new way of getting out some of those ideas that have been stewing in your head. Where did that go through and where did that fit with your tenure of your career going through? And what were you working on at that point that prompted you to actually sit down, write a different style book with a new set that, from what I can tell, is supposed to be the new refresh of trying to get structured interpretation of computer programs and fill in some of those gaps that people have found after working on against that book and making it a new refresh intro course of software development. How did that progression come about from finally getting those ideas kind of in your head as you were doing the little schemer to actually going and developing that book? Yeah. So after five years, Rice gave me, as I said, a full professorship, which is as far as professors go, as much as you want to achieve any so-called promotion beyond that is actually a demotion. They were looking for somebody to take over the introductory course and teach structure and interpretation to 50, 60 freshmen. That's how big Rice's generation of freshmen was in computer science. And I said, I'm interested. I've wrote those, I wrote those books, and I'd like to see how it works in the classroom. Now, at the time, Rice was one of the three strongest universities in the country in terms of incoming student groups. And I realized some things. Students didn't actually get how to write programs well. They could write fascinating programs, but by tinkering and, and, and trying things out and, and, and not knowing why they had come up with some idea, not being able to repeat this process. So I struggled with this for a couple of years. I went on a um, sabbatical at Carnegie Mellon. And I watched Bob Hopper, a professor in types and ML-like programming languages, teach a very similar course with exactly the same interactions with students and the same problems coming about. So when I returned, I said, I need to change my approach to this whole thing. I need to figure out what we want to do in our first course. In a sense, how design programs is not at all filling in the gaps in structure and habitation. It is a counterpole to this approach. We have three approaches to freshmen. The first one is teach them some syntax of the most current teenage heartbreak programming language, Python at the moment, and basically do programs like way back when we were taught, which sometimes means 1970s. And... The approach really is not much more than Tinker, 
run the program at the REPL or run the program in, uh, in a Unix shell and type some stuff in and hallelujah, it works and great, the assignment is done. At the other end, you had an incredibly new approach for structure mutation of computer programs, which used a programming language to sketch out lots of ideas in computer science without explaining how the programs came about. But there was a lot of depth there in that Ableton and Sussman really want to explain deep ideas from the entire curriculum of computer science. So my approach takes a very different tack. I believe that most of our undergraduates will eventually become software developers. And we owe them a curriculum that teaches them how to construct programs with a systematic process. And functional programming is the ideal starting point for that kind of curriculum. It sits right in the middle between the kind of math that students saw in school and were bored with and how to create realistic Java programs or JavaScript programs or what have you. Math is important, we know that, but it is boring. So why should we start from math? Well, because the mathematical thinking will not go away when we use braces and semicolons, it'll just be covered up. So how does this work to create programs systematically? You you can look at two dimensions of this process. One dimension is how complex is the data that I'm dealing with? I could be dealing with atomic forms of data like characters, numbers, or I could slowly introduce, go all the way up to algebraic data types, perhaps uh, recursive algebraic data types or mutually recursive algebraic data types or algebraic data types that are pointless like those in Haskell where you don't have a bottom up, you just have infinite values. So this is one dimension. You can gradually introduce students to more and more complex forms of data. In the other dimension, you can use the organization, the structure of this data definition to carefully, step-by-step, step, derive, and we use six steps to be precise, the shape of the function and why it has to be that way. And so at the end, you could at any point in time, you could point at a cell in this grid of data structure complexity and process complexity and say, what would you do here? And you can actually come up with questions a teaching assistant or a professor can ask of a student who is stuck at a particular point in this grid that are completely parametric in the problem that you're working on. And sooner or later, every student will understand that you're asking the same questions over and over again, and that these questions actually help the student make progress. And so the students empower themselves to say, oh, I can write the most complicated programs with this process if I follow this, what we call a recipe. So, for example, we can take students who have never programmed before, and we can have them write a program that traverses, say, a directory tree on your Unix box in five weeks. That's a mutually recursive data type. No other course has, no other approach to first freshman programming has this, has this power. So I realized this power was there. I wanted to write this book. And then on a flight back from a conference, one of my graduate students at the time, his name is Cormac Flanagan. He's now a professor at the University of California. He asked, if it's so powerful, why does nobody use it? 
And for three hours, we discussed it, and we decided the right approach would be to reach out to high schools and to see whether we could create a course that introduces programming and leverages mathematics and other disciplines like economics or physics that use some mathematical approach. That way you could show that programming helps mathematics come alive and also helps understand other approaches with little programming exercises, other, other, other disciplines like physics or economics. So we created an outreach project. This is in 94, and it was not at all popular at the time. As a matter of fact, my dean at Rice didn't like the idea. There were other ways of reaching out to the world, but I stuck to it, and I've stuck to it for 20 years, and some of my students have stuck to it, and my students of my students have stuck to it, and we have now reached a point where we have lots of middle schools using this approach at their level appropriate for their form of mathematics to teach children how to program. My own son is a teacher in middle school in a place in Texas, and he is using uh, this approach. It's called Bootstrap to teach students in seventh grade. President Obama mentioned the approach recently in his address on education, and in particular education in STEM fields and programming for everybody. It's one of three approaches he mentioned in his, in his address, and it is uh, available from the White House. Just this little speech, and uh, we're very proud that we have come that far. But it's not about the announcement, it is about reaching students and showing them how to solve problems systematically. It was a powerful idea. It is really helping students to improve their understanding of math. And if they never program again, that they become doctors or lawyers or journalists, they will be able to use this method to solve problems in their world. So this is, this is really my goal, and, and uh, I think we're, going, we're getting there slowly. And I didn't realize the push down that you are working with the how to design programs concepts of getting that down into the high schools and even middle schools. So you mentioned it's called bootstrap, but where can people find out more to figure out how to take this and apply it if they are involved or they have kids their own or just have neighbor kids or whoever and want to help bring this out and expose it and take some of these lessons, even on a small level to bring their community around. We created Bootstrap at Northeastern many years ago, approximately 10 years ago. And I was very, very fortunate to find a person who wanted to manage this project. His name is Emmanuel Schanzer. He and two of my former students, Kathy Fistler and Shuram Krishnamurthy, have taken on the leadership and they've created a wonderful website called bootstrap-world.org. Emmanuel came from a world where you uh, create short, concise courses and script them. So anybody who wanted to teach a course on programming could walk in on Tuesday morning, read the script for the afternoon session, and spend 90 minutes with kids going through this dialogue that was prepared. We did this as an after-school program because it is very, very difficult to change educational institutions. But after-school programs are always welcome. So for many years, we ran Bootstrap as an after-school program at various regions around the country, Dorchester and Boston, Harlem in New York, East Palo Alto out in California. We had East Austin schools, uh, Chicago schools. So we, we taught it after-school programs, and after-school programs need this support. So we would have a script, 
We would have a curriculum, nine weeks, those nine lessons, and kids can write their own little video game of a little man jumping through hoops and catching balls or things like whatever the kids wanted to do. And only recently, I want to say last three or four years, we've been able to reach teachers directly because what teachers, especially math teachers, notice is that the kids who had gone through after-school bootstrap were significantly better in the math courses when they returned. Kids who had failed the Massachusetts sixth grade test would come back and achieve good grades. They had understood algebraic expressions, variable expressions, functions, and all by never being told you're doing math. They thought they were writing code to produce video games. But of course, you and I know functional programming is basically mathematics, especially at that level, it's just algebra. So we got a lot of interest from schools who wanted to try it out, and Emmanuel and Kathy and Shriam were very able connectors. They were connecting to these schools, and we built a program. We had regional representatives. These days, we have parents, college students, and sometimes teachers teach these nine-week sessions, either as after-school programs, sometimes embedded in math curriculum. The most recent development is that some states are now interested in bringing coding directly into the math school curriculum at the middle school level, and they're intensely looking at bootstrap. Rhode Island and Massachusetts are probably going to offer bootstrap as one of two or three alternatives for this level of teaching, and we're hoping to go further. Bootstrap is the beginning. As far as I'm concerned, we have a curriculum that goes from middle school to high school to freshman year, all the way to a software development course in what we call junior year in a regular college, not even as a five-year program, so it's called middle year here, but two or three years into the college, we still know how to use this very systematic approach to teach software construction. So it's a smooth path all the way from middle school to software developers who are about to graduate. I'm glad that you mentioned that because that wasn't even on my radar, but it sounds like a fantastic resource and... I've got young kids and they're not anywhere close to that, but it's one of those things. And I know other people I've talked to have had kids or at least siblings who have kids or have been involved in the community or just even bringing up people the first time if they haven't known on some of these boot camps of getting new people coming in and being involved with it. And that sounds like a fantastic resource just to be able to get that exposure to start with and say, look, we're going to get you to actually understand how to think about software versus, as you said, come in and I can kind of put stuff together and finagle something to kind of get it working, but I don't understand what I did. And that was one of the things that I noticed when I was a TA and my undergrad, they needed some volunteers to do a TA of an intro course using Java, I believe that was maybe even C or C++ at that point. But it was, we need to just do a calculation. So read a number in multiply it by 10 and put it as a dollar and I'll put it to the screen. And it was just trying to figure out how you get some of these people who kind of had to take a introduction to computer science course and they weren't even software, but like for a business course or something and just try and break that problem down of saying, okay, so, so you need to do this. So how do you even get something in? Like you need to get a value. How do you ask that user for a value and all that kind of stuff? And if I even knew about some of this stuff back then, I'm sure it would have helped me just try and get some of those points across to people who weren't taking a computer science course because they wanted to, but because it was a requirement for their business degree or whatever degree it was. Yeah. 
I agree that we are failing students in this regard. We're failing them in two different ways. For our own majors, we fail to prepare them for what a career will actually demand. Development time should not be measured in how you develop something now real quick and it kind of works, but how you can maintain it over five or 10 years. And if you have approached your software in a systematic manner, your successor will also realize what this was and will have a much easier time changing, improving, modifying this quote than if you tinkered it together. But that's a much more important, different direction. We cannot expect that all the kids who now learn to code because it is fashionable will end up as software developers. We will need lawyers. We will need doctors. We will need journalists. They all solve problems. We need architects. They solve problems. It would be wonderful if computer science explicitly, and not just implicitly, explicitly showed freshman students or students in a first course how our world allows them to view problem solving as a very systematic process. The process that I teach and that can be scaled up builds a scaffolding to the point where you need a little bit of creativity to solve the problem. But a lot of times, people don't understand that problem solving is 90% scaffolding and 10% focus on the hard part of the problem, and they just don't know how to tackle problems. With our approach, we can tackle problems in all realms. And I actually ask students in my freshman courses to write an essay. If you're a biology major or if you're a pre-med major, how can you apply this design recipe to problems from your area? And at first, students are stunned. And then they realize, yes, if you systematically follow this process and you reinterpret it in your own world, it helps to solve problems in your world. Computer science is the problem-solving discipline. And we should make much more use of what we have learned from functional programming over the last 25 to 30 years to teach our students how this applies to many, many more things than uh, just coding. So I agree with you. There's a lot of power there, and uh, we just need to use it more. And the teaching seems to be one of your big focuses because you've also been involved with the PLT scheme, a.k.a. Racket Now, And part of that was, again, from everything I've understood about that, a very early focus on getting something that's there and feedback for helping people to learn how to think, how to break down problems, because you have the things like you mentioned earlier with Dr. Racket, where it's a very interactive, very tangible, very hands-on feel of, I can understand how when I break this down and I can see an input and I can start to feel the output and put things together, so... Where did the PLT scheme and racket fall in? Because I believe, talking with Matthew Flat, there was some relation about racket and PLT scheme early on being part of this how to design programs as well? Yes. So how to design programs and racket, or at the time PLT scheme, came about together. They are twins, born from the same idea. As you mentioned, back then it was fashionable to teach either C, C++, or Java in an introductory course, read a number, divide it by 10, print it out again with a dollar sign. Reality was, I watched kids fail at this simple task with failures that should never have been failures. Instead of writing 
result equals input divided by 10, they wrote input divided by 10 equals result. Well, algebraically, there's nothing wrong with it, but it won't compile because what you now have on the left-hand side is probably an LHS expression, and C++ will complain about this bitterly with all kinds of highlighting in your IDE. So I realized very early on that in addition to a text and a system, a scheme system for programming, I really needed an interactive medium where students would get feedback that was appropriate for their understanding of the design process. And a big programming language like C or Java assumes a programmer knows everything about Java or everything about C. Error messages are explained at that level. They're articulated at a level where programmers know everything. But beginners, by definition, don't know everything. They only know a small part. So in addition to the idea of saying we need better ways of explaining errors, we realized we needed lots of little languages. So from the very beginning, we were aiming for a programming language in which it was easy to make little languages that contain and build on each other. So a teaching language for the very beginner. No quote, no quoted lists, because we knew quote and quoted lists really, really pose problems for students and understanding how calculations work in a scheme system. We had no lambda in there because high-order functions are really an obstacle again to learning. So we needed a way to make languages. Naturally, in Scheme, you can make languages. I had explored and had done research on macros with the goal of having an abstraction inside of Scheme that allowed you to build other languages. We built hygienic macros back in Indiana. The fundamental idea was that you can use this mechanism to build domain-specific languages, in this case, languages for the domain of education. So it was not an accident that we built this whole system on a scheme. And Matthew and Shuram had just joined my PhD group, my research group, and they were totally enthusiastic about building both the educational program, but also the underlying software that we needed to run the educational program. So that was the birth of both how to design programs and how to support how to design programs in a classroom. We started building this at the same time. We shared tasks. We all got together all the time to talk about all the tasks. A year later, Robbie Findler joined us, and he built the surface layer to this entire system called Dr. Racket. That's our IDE, and it is originally it was really tuned for beginners. Well, all stories that unfold like this eventually move on to a point where real people want to use it for real programming. And by five, ten years, not even ten years into the story of PLT scheme. Dr. Racket became a tool for real programmers. Now, Racket became a tool for real programmers. And this, again, it's no accident. Scheme, or Racket in this case, equipped with really good tools like how to build a domain specific language, offer abstractions that other programming languages do not. And domain specific languages, as somebody a long time ago said, 
is the ultimate abstraction. It's more powerful than lambda. It's more powerful than algebraic type. It's more powerful than functors and signatures and structures and ML. People use it to formulate the ideas in the language in which the problem is stated and that everybody can read afterwards, everybody in this area, in this domain of expertise. So people picked up Racket and PLT scheme before that as the tool to be able to solve real problems. Dr. Racket had to come along and accommodate programmers who live in this world. Now later we realized that some people want to make their programs a bit more robust. When I say robust, I mean they want to open a file or a module and see what previous programmers, what the creators of this module had in mind when they created it. You and I know that types are one tool of bringing across what was in my mind when I wrote down an algebraic data type or a function that works on an algebraic data type. In plain scheme, in plain racket, in plain lisp or closure, you have no means other than comments to write that down. Now, I'm a disciplined programmer. I write it down all the time. Every file starts with, this module deals with data foo, and foo is one-off. And then there are my five alternatives. Some of them point back to foo. That's an algebraic data type, but it's a comment, and it might be out of sync. So this is how the idea of typed record came about, gradually adding types to programs so that maintainers would find some type information, and the type information was actually sound. It was just like in ML or in Haskell, something that will hold at runtime. So you see how one thing led to another. Yes, it was born. How to send programs and PLT scheme were twins at birth, and they're still together. They've grown up. One is more education-faced. The other one is much more professional-facing, professional programmer-facing, and both have grown up in different directions. But they're related still, and they still support each other. So I'm very happy looking back at how the idea of trying to inject this beautiful um, concept of coding into mathematics in middle school gave rise to such a big area of research and educational outreach at the same time. And the typed racket I had heard from inspiration from type closure and then some other things as well, where it's extending off. Again, I guess it has given inspiration of some other languages. I think there's something for... Ruby, there's Dialyzer with Erlang, where you can start to specify your types and start to enhance that. So how did that come in with TypeTracket to begin with? Because it takes a special kind of understanding to be able to apply types at the compile time to something that's dynamic, like a Lisp. But was that from the beginning, or was that something that was able to be slowly added and ported backwards to make sure that you could actually get a fully progressive fleshed out type system if desired while being completely optional to be used as well. One of my research vectors from 1989 through now has been how to add types retroactively to dynamically typed programs. We started with a notion called soft typing. I wasn't the inventor, but I was involved early on. We moved from soft typing based on Hindley-Milner, which means like ML or like Haskell, to soft typing based on set-based analysis, which is what my, my idea. All of these ideas used some form of inference to reconstruct what was in the programmer's mind. And two obstacles showed up over and over again. One of them was we didn't come up with precise good types. We came up with 
reasonable approximations. If you squinted, you would recognize your ideas from way back. But in reality, they weren't good enough. The other problem was when we found that the types that we inferred clashed with the program as written, what you and I call a type error, the mechanism could not explain what was wrong with the program. And could not explain is maybe too harsh, but it was very difficult to explain it well. So we were facing this problem of how to explain errors. Eventually, in the late 90s, I came up with the idea of we should write down types explicitly. But then the question is, what does it mean to write in a type in one module and export something to a module that does not respect types? I was bouncing around this idea for several years until I met Sam Topenhochstadt, who, together with me and others here, but mostly under his leadership, produced TypeRacket. So TypeRacket is definitely a post-talk system designed to accommodate all the dynamic patterns and idioms that had evolved in Racket, in the Racket world, with a type system. So it was not easy to come up with a type system that would, say, type our kind of recursive program that goes and produces an S expression. Because when we write these programs, as programmers, we know that some branches in the conditional are protected by a predicate. But that's in our mind. How can a type system figure that out? How can a type system confirm that? And it needed a very different approach from Hindley Milner, which is used in ML and in Haskell, to validate these kind of conditional. We call this now occurrence typing. Occurrence typing is an essential idea to get idioms from the dynamic world through a type checker without changing code. All you have to do is declare the type of a variable and the type of a function, and voila, the type checker can confirm it. The other half of the coin was, now I have a type module, I have dozens of modules, I won't convert all of them into type record all at once, if my module exports something to your module and you're untyped, how do I know you will respect my typing that says integer or integer? Maybe you're going to apply it to your float, and then all hell could break loose. So in addition to types, we had to develop a notion of contracts. Historically, it came about in a, in a roundabout manner, but we have so-called contracts, also higher-order contracts because we have higher-order functions, and we have classes that are higher-order values, so they are protected now at boundaries between type and untyped code um, with these contracts. So a type is compiled to a contract to make sure that when I'm in my type module, hence your untyped module or function, that you will not abuse it in a way that contradicts my types. So a type programmer can rely on the information in the type, just like in ML, just like in Haskell. An untyped programmer can program, and when something goes wrong, when an interrogation goes wrong, the error message, and it's critical here, the error message will say, between those two modules, between this type module and this untyped module, something isn't quite in sync. You guys need to inspect whether you have the right type or whether you have the right way of handing over this typed function to an untyped piece of code. And then people can sit down and negotiate and come up with the right solution to this error. So it was critical to come up with this extra mechanism, this contract mechanism, to mediate this impedance mismatch between type and untyped modules. Other languages 
like Clojure, for example, under Ambrose, have picked up this idea, except that Ambrose couldn't quite reconstruct in Clojure what we have with all of our infrastructure already. So in his, he is very much using our type ticker, but when an untyped closure function consumes a type closure function, nothing is there to protect it. Ambrose has realized this problem, and he has decided to study with Sam tobin my former PhD student who is now at Indiana, and to address these shortcomings of type closure. There are other languages like reticulated Python, which has injected a gradual type system into Python. It's an effort run by Jeremy Seek. There are efforts in the Ruby world. There are efforts in the JavaScript world. There is both a typed script and a strong script. There are other efforts, too, on, on how, to, how to bring types to these languages. There's efforts in the real world out there on uh, moving PHP to a type basis. And the reason is very simple. When you write a piece of code, a bunch of modules, you have 10, 20,000 lines of code, and you let it sit for a year or two years, and then you have a bug report. You open up this file, you don't remember in what order arguments are flowing into a function. You have to read the code. But that slows you down in figuring out and comprehending what is inside your module. So any type annotation will clearly help you maintain this code. At the same time, modern IDEs rely on type annotations to support the keyboard typing action that programmers have, the dumb part of programming. But it's a very important part, too, because programmers rely on this IDE support. Where does support come from? It comes from types. So if some module already has types and the IDE knows a little bit about some form of just optional type information, it can help programmers. So it's a huge spectrum of work that is addressed by adding types slowly, gradually to these untyped programs, and it's an important piece of work. So I think this is my most real-world kind of research I'm doing, and I've been doing it for 30 years. So, yeah, it's very, I'm very happy about this research and how it has panned out. There's lots of work to be done, and fortunately we have those who support this kind of effort, and hopefully in two or three years from now we'll be able to talk about what kind of progress we made there. And I kind of really appreciate it because I came from a C, Java, .NET background. So while it had types, they weren't the amazing types of an ML language, but they still had strong statically types that you had declared. And then working in JavaScript and Ruby and playing with some closure, there is definitely a nice flexibility of having those dynamic types, but it also means sometimes you lose out on that discipline that you were talking about earlier of thinking up front and saying, actually, let me, before I start playing with this and experimenting, what do I actually need? What is required of this? And what is that contract explicitly of what this makes? So having that and being able to have that to be taken advantage of in a dynamic language is something that seems appealing to me, at least, of saying, Look, I can now step back. I can now document my thoughts and saying, yes, I'm expecting this to take a non-null string. I'm expecting this to take only an int or an int that's positive. Because you know what? If you pass me something like this, I'm going to blow up. And I don't even want to think about handling bad inputs because this is something at the inside of the system, not something at the outer bounds of the system that's user or outside input. I agree with you. We need these kind of things. and. In some ways, that's really a, uh, it's still new research and lots of new work, and type record really needs a lot of help. 
So yeah, we, we keep pushing on this. So we've covered a lot and stuff I haven't even thought about, but is there anything that we haven't covered that you think we're missing out that we should let people know about? Is there anything that's coming up on your radar that you're making a push for? It sounds like you're going in and still driving the type racket and a lot of racket progression, but what haven't we covered that you think people should know about or at least what's on your radar of things? An active researcher like me has lots of lots of projects going on. But I think uh, we've covered so much ground that I will let your readers recover from this for a while, as your listeners. I will say, and you said I could end here with a, with a little call for action, I will say that it is always helpful if outsiders, new, fresh eyes, look at things. And if any of your listeners has any interest in exploring a very different kind of functional programming language, I would love to invite them to look at type bracket, to play with type bracket and see how it plays without type sometimes, or how the combination of type bracket and syntactic extensions work. It's a completely different world from what they probably know. And any fresh eyes who look at this and explore it and stretch it and bend it and maybe break it would be wonderful because researchers need this kind of feedback from people who use language in the real world. Racket has lots of people using it. We have hundreds of downloads a day. We have reached uh, the million unique downloads, milestone a long time ago. But type record clearly needs an extra push from the outside. So if your listeners are interested in a new world of programming, take type record for a swirl, for a spin. Take it out there and see what it does for you. And what's the best way for them to track that down? Just go to the Racket site and look into Type Racket? RacketLang.org. You download the bundle and everything comes with it. All batteries included. More batteries than you could possibly imagine. That sounds fantastic. So where can people find and follow online with what's going on with you? Is the best place just your site on the Northeastern University page? Yes, just basically Google my first name. And you will find my site at Northeastern, where I try to at least post my research results. Once a year, we do a record con. Typically, we co-locate with Strange Loop in St. Louis. I think it's a September event. I don't have the exact dates in mind right now. But we are co-located with Strange Loop, And the best way is to watch the videos there, just to see what kind of things happen in the record world. So this is, a, again, at the Racket Lang site, there is a bunch of videos, there's pointers to various materials that we write and produce. And uh, personally, I'm not a good at social networks in the new media. So don't follow me on tweet. I don't have any. Don't follow me on Facebook. I refuse it. I don't do Google Plus more than once a decade. But I, everybody else in my world does so. And if you follow those people, you'll find out what I'm up to uh, because I work with everybody who's ever being close to me. And I continue working with those people for a long, many years to come. That sounds great. So I'll get that links to your site on the show notes. I'll get the typed racket and racket sites in the show notes. I'll get the bootstrap world and how to design programs so everybody can follow along. So it's great. I'll put as much stuff as I can get in. And so people can figure out what's going on you with you and the progression and take advantage of your years of research and pushing the field forward for some of this stuff. Thank you. I'd like to give Jane thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Matthias, for taking your time and joining me today. I know we had some issues with the Skype call in the middle with the quality, but thank you very much for taking your time. And I learned a lot of other stuff going on in the world that 
of Lisp and things you've been involved with that I didn't know about, and it was very informative. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, maybe in a few years from now, we can talk about Type Record and how it has evolved then. Yeah, I'd love to catch up with you in a number of years and figure out where things have gone, any lessons you've learned, and how they can be applied anywhere else that it makes sense for it. Yep. Great. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.